Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting. And also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 192, Managing Private Land Seminar from the NWTF Convention. And I am your host and the guy who did it again this past weekend. I actually spotted some more poults this weekend, and I was able to get a picture of them this time. So I only saw one hen Saturday, but she just so happened to have three poults with her. And as they walked across the road in front of my vehicle, I took their picture, and a couple of them even turned and smiled for the picture, which was pretty cool. So I'm excited about seeing poults. I still am a little on the pessimistic side about our hatch in Alabama this year. I think, and this is just me thinking out loud, that with the rainfall that we had in the month of May, we probably are going to have some areas in the state that had very poor recruitment of poults, and we're probably going to have some areas in the state that had very good recruitment of poults. We will see. Nonetheless, seeing three more poults made my day on Saturday. And I also got to create a few bass beds in the lake. So I should be able to pull a few fish out of those spots this coming weekend. That's a pretty good thing. And right now, today, we are 260 days, 8 hours, 37 minutes, and 30 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. Only 260 days. So this week I've got part of the Managing Private Land Seminar from the NWTF Convention. And if you recall in episode number 174, which was the NWTF Convention recap show, I mentioned this particular seminar. And I talked about one of the topics that was discussed in this seminar, and that was the federal program where states can use federal money to lease private land for public hunting. I know it's a little confusing, but this is the seminar that I learned about that program in. So I'm going to replay part of this seminar for you guys. Now, I'm going to tell you that I had to sit in the back of this seminar because I got there pretty late. So The audio is not the best in the world. I am afraid that there's going to be probably a word or two in the seminar that you're just not going to be able to to understand, where the speaker probably pulled the microphone away from his or her mouth or turned their head away from the mic or whatever it happens to be. But there's going to be a time or two where you're going to miss something. I wouldn't worry about it you're going to get the gist of what the seminar was about. And maybe, like me, you might get an idea or two in your head about trying to get your state NWTF chapter to start lobbying the powers that be in your state to get their hands on some of this federal money to lease private lands for public hunting. So without any further delay, here is 
the Managing Private Land Seminar from the NWTF Convention. And I will see you guys on the other side. Young 
there's two main ways of creating a young forest habitat. One is allowing a field to grow. If you leave a field alone, it's going to go through something called natural succession, which is just different stages of plants. If you let a field grow, it's going to go from grasses to shrubland, and then from shrubland to sapling, seedling trees, and then from seedling sapling trees, you're going to eventually get a mature forest. So allowing that natural process will create a shrubland habitat for a small window of time, probably like 15 to 20 years. And then it's going to eventually grow into a mature forest, and then you're going to have to do a different type of management, which is timber harvest. So the type of timber harvest that we're doing specifically to create this young forest habitat in New York isn't a clear cut necessarily, because we talked about that coarse woody debris that's important for the turkey nesting, right? It's also important for the regeneration of those plants. So in New York specifically, we have pretty high deer population. If you were to do a clear cut, it would be very hard for those plants to be able to grow back. And, and, and so you do a clear cut and you take all of those trees away. It's going to be hard for those plants to grow back because the deer pressure is so heavy. They're going to be eating all of those new, yummy sprouts that are coming out of the ground. So if you leave holes and you leave crowns, you can take some out, you can use them for firewood. If you leave a good portion of them on the ground, you're going to be allowing protection for those new plants, as well as protection for the, the, the turkeys and the rabbits and a good variety of wildlife. The other thing that's important is that we're not doing a fair cut either. We're doing more of a seed tree cut. So I'm retaining trees that are important for wildlife. I'm retaining fruit and nut trees so you have your mast, you have those oaks and those hickories that will be growing back because you're providing a seed source. But then I'm also retaining snags and cavity trees. So trees that could be either used for by like woodpeckers or used by uh, bees and used by uh, bats or raccoons. Different types of habitat that, that are needed across the landscape. So um, not just taking all of the trees off leaving some protection. This is kind of a picture of an ideal shrubland and forest habitat. You have that mature tree that's going to be your seed source. You have those vertical layers. You have different heights of vegetation. You have some grasses. You have some shrubs. Just providing that, that detail and providing all those, those variety for those wildlife. So the partnerships. Why is this important to you? How can you maybe get involved? That type of thing. Our main partner that I'm working with is the Natural Resource Conservation Service. And uh, we were talking about that in the previous presentation as well, how NRCS can provide cost-share funding for landowners that are interested in creating quality habitat on their land. The programs that I work with mostly and the programs that are available in my area are the Environmental Quality Incentive Program, EQIP, and then the Regional Conservation Partnership Program, RCPP. These are the main ones that I see being used in my area, but there are multiple different um, programs that are available across the country. Specifically, my RCPP that I'm working on is an agreement between Wildlife Management Institute and NRCS, and they've brought in four partners. So we have the National Wild Turkey Federation, Quality Deer Management, Rough Ground Society, and Audubon. <coughs> so there are biologists from all four of these organizations that are working on this RCPP, specifically in New York. And the name of that RCPP is the Young Forest Initiative for At-Risk Species. So that's kind of gearing towards that young forest habitat. And there's four of us across the state that, that are able to help landowners. So pretty much NRCS plus WMI equals happy landowners. Um, specifically, what we do and what we can provide is site evaluations. If a landowner is interested in increasing wildlife on their land or improving habitat, then I can go out and those other partners can go out to their property and do a site <coughs> evaluation, walk the property with you, and tell you what we see. Take your goals into consideration, but also kind of let you know what's needed. Like if you have a lot of invasive species, we're going to tell you, and we're going to let you know that, that it would be beneficial to treat those invasive species. 
Um, the next thing is written recommendations. For all the properties that I go see, I write down everything that we talked about. I write down the recommendations and kind of how you can approach that, uh, like a management type. I'm not going to write you a full management plan, but I'll definitely write you recommendations on how to improve your property. And then if you're interested in creating a forest habitat in my area, then I can help you find funding for those programs. And anyone that's working on a similar program can do the same thing in your area. New York isn't the only one that has money available for creating wildlife habitat. All the states have um, NRCS programs, and all of our states have um, NWTF biologists that you're able to contact and ask questions to. And if you don't mind, we're going to hold all the questions till the end. Oh, I hope you want to add? <laughs> do you, do you want to add? We have time, just ask. Uh, with RCCP, RCCP or is that the? RCPP. RCPP. That is a, similar to EQIP, that's uh, a point evaluation type thing that you have to do when you apply? So, so RCPP is a separate pot of funding. So it's, it's a program within our NRCS. It's like a separate pot of funding, and EQIP is another set of pot of funding. So if you wanted to, in, like, in New York, at least, you can apply to both programs. So we have an EQIP travel program, and we have this RCPP for Young Forest Habitat. They're both pretty much doing the same thing. You can apply to both, and that way, if you get denied for one, you still have a chance with the other one. Does that kind of answer your question? Does that, can you get cost share for both? Can you do both? I don't think so. With, with the NRCS program, generally you're not you're, you're only able to get you, you have one contract for the, for that acre. You you cannot have multiple contracts for the same acre. Thank you. Another question. Yeah. The RCCP RCPP that is not federal funds. That's private funds being donated or shared or what? How? I don't. So, no. so the RCPP, the, the NWTF, if, if they're a partner in this, right. they're providing funds. Right. So, yeah, all the partners are providing some level of match, but the RCPP is Farm Bill program funding through NRCS. Yes. It is, so it is federal, federal funding. Correct. Yeah. And, and it, it, it utilizes the RCPP allows partners to deliver NRCS programs that, you know, from a capacity standpoint, maybe NRCS staff alone are not able to do. So it brings partners into the fold to help deliver their programs for private landowners. And, and part of the power, if you will, behind RCPP is somebody is given administrative rights, if you will, to that money, and can kind of tell NRCS where they want it spent. So that partner has a lot of voice in where that money goes and kind of how it's spent. Whereas Equip, Equip's quite specific as the practices that are put in there for every year for that pot of money. And uh, have to so, so much money could be for TSI, so much money could be for et cetera. Thank you. All right, so the areas in New York, we have two NWTF biologists that are covering parts of New York. I'm in the eastern part of the state, and then Kristen Geiger is in the western part of the state. The rest of the state is the other partners. So um, Audubon New York, Rough Craft Society, and Quality Deer Management, they're taking over the other parts of the state, or covering the other parts of the state. So the last thing I wanted to let you know was that I told you a lot about what's available in my area, but that's not the only stuff that's available in the whole country. You, there's programs in your area, there's NWTF biologists that you can ask questions there's, there's NRCS offices that you can contact. So if you have any question about creating quality habitat on your land, definitely reach out to some of these programs and some of these organizations and, and ask questions and see what could be available in your area. All right, I think I'm all set. leasing biologist in Texas, uh, which means my job with the National Wild Turkey Federation is working with Texas Parks and Wildlife to lease private lands for public hunting. Uh, anybody here from Texas? 
That's what I thought. I'm going to go real quick about what I do for Texas, and then we'll talk about what you all can do as landowners where you're at, because there's an awful lot of crossover that's, that's outside of Texas. It's going to be real hard to see those numbers. Uh, if you can see the red in each state, that's a graphic representation of how much public land is in your state. And you see what happens once you hit the once you hit the Mountain West. It's a lot of public land, but the rest of the country is really good. It's not very much. So specifically in Texas, Texas is the second largest state in the union, and we have a little less than two percent public land. Uh, hunting in states that don't have public land is very difficult. So that's what we're going to talk about. It's key through Texas real fast. Parks and Wildlife, Texas Parks and Wildlife has had a program for 30 years where the state takes money, the state becomes the lease, the lease seed. They're leasing land to open it up to public hunting. It's not as scary as it sounds, uh, but it takes a little bit of landowners to talk to their neighbors that fit in the program. Uh, so it's been going on for 30 years. When Texas Parks and Wildlife partnered with NWTF, the program took off. Uh, there's three of me in the state and we're able to, to focus completely on leasing land. Uh, so since we started doing it for the state, NWTF has opened up 56 leases in 29 counties and a little over 21,000 acres of land. That's something we're pretty proud of that's happened in the last three years. Uh, this last year, we're able to do some things that are more difficult for the, for the state to do. We were able to, to open up some pronghorn hunts. Uh, people in Texas, we found out through surveys, are very interested in pronghorns. We started focusing on pronghorn. This last year, the first year we tried, we opened up three adult hunts and two youth hunts. Uh, this is something you don't know how to deal with the, with the state or federal agency. There's some bureaucracy and the wheels turn slowly. Partnering with NWTF allows us to cut that red tape. So we were able to do pronghorn hunts in the first year, but it probably would have taken the state four or five years to get ready. Um, we're pretty proud of that. If you count the long or the pronghorn hunts in, we had almost 36,000 acres of land access. The NWTF has, has helped us partial wildlife. This is pretty typical on our leases. We have a check-in station. You'll see that little metal box. This is all on private land. The hunters are required to check in in the box, and when they, when they finish hunting, they check out, they tell us what they saw, what they shot, how many of what they shot, whether they liked it or not, what we can do differently. Uh, everybody that hunts these, everybody has to have a hunting license to hunt. But to hunt the private lands, you have to buy an additional $48 permit. Uh, that $48 gets you on any of the leases all the way across the state. Uh, the gang wardens, when they check, they want to make sure you, you register. We take this seriously because we want to know what, what's being shot. Make sure that we're doing it right. There we go. Let's get outside of Texas and, and think about y'all, the rest of the country. We are losing hunters. You're going to hear that the, the, this, this whole weekend. Hunters are walking away. New hunters aren't being recruited as quickly as they should. What I encounter a lot in Texas is when I'm looking for, for land police, when I'm talking to landowners, all they think of is deer. So when I start talking to them about leasing their land, they think, well, I don't want you to lease my deer. Somehow, we as a group, we as a community, we have, we have changed everyone's minds with the way they think about it is big game. So y'all saw my next slide. For those of you that have been around a little while, you remember the magazine rack at the store used to have pictures like this. Rabbits and squirrels, whatever was in season was going to be in season. If you go right now down to Barnesville, when you look at the rack of hunting magazines, what do you say? Monster mule deer, monster whitetail, monster elk. Now, there's, y'all don't get me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but we, we have changed our community where it sounds like the only legitimate hunting is big game. And that's expensive and it's difficult. New hunters or people that would be interested in hunting that aren't quite there yet, if all they see is this, it's intimidating. We have forgotten, we have very much forgotten, rabbit, squirrel, and small game hunting is legitimate hunting. Agreed? This is probably most of us in this room when we started hunting, this was a gateway, right? You got to shoot rabbits, you shoot squirrels, you shoot dove. In Texas, we shoot a lot of dove, a lot of pheasant. But these magazines don't sell. Y'all see what we've done. What I see dealing with landowners now trying to talk about leasing their land is when I'm, when I'm talking to them, all they're thinking is big game. We want to open up this kind of to get people back into the game. This is this all ties into R3. 
new people, hunters that have walked away reactivated, new hunters, new hunters coming in. It's that recruitment, retention, reactivate. And a lot of that is through small games. Um, let's go back to this map. Most of us probably live in the eastern side of this. Is that right? So we're dealing with, we live in places where if you're going to start hunting, you're going to have to know somebody. So if you don't have a program like what NWTF is doing with Texas Parcel Wildlife, it's going to be you. We in this room are the future of hunting. We're the future of R3. We're the future of getting people back into it. So if you have land, you're part of this. There's a lot of ways you can do it. It, it sounds scary, but this is the next step. We, we should all, and you're going to hear a lot this weekend, we should all take people hunting. We need to get people introduced to our sport. But if you're one of those unique people in the country, it's a landowner. This is a brave step, but consider your land as part of as part of our three. So what can you do? Volunteer public access, the, the money that I'm spending is all of our tax money. It's tied to the, to the, to the National Farm Bill. That money you can encourage your state to get it, or any state in the can get it if it's Join forces with an R3 coordinator to host the hunt. The NWTF, and you're going to hear a lot about that this week, this weekend, We've got a lot of R3 people coming on board. They're out doing the work. They just need somewhere to take folks in some places. Our R3 coordinator in Texas is going to need land to go, to go take people. Um, I gave a talk, this was a couple months ago, with my alma mater. I'm from, I got a degree, a, a while I degree from Texas Tech. I gave a talk to their graduate association. These are only master's and PhD candidates getting degrees in wildlife management, not biology, wildlife management. I asked them who had never been hunting, and almost the entire group of 50 students raised hand. These are students getting degrees in a lot of management that I'm hunting. Uh, I had a landowner that I partnered with that was going to give us uh, turkey access. And I asked the students, if you, Turkey Federation, if we bring the guns, we've got the guys, we've got the land, who wants to go? And they just kind of looked at me. That should shock all of us. It definitely shocked me, but it made me more passionate about this. We as a community have got to do a better job promoting our sport, promoting our, our heritage, our legacy. Um, in Texas, I don't know about where y'all are, day hunts. People listen to day hunts on Craigslist. Y'all familiar with that? This happens in Texas a lot with, with dove and geese and cranes and, and other waterfowl. Um, I can't imagine this working real well with deer and big game, but it's another way to use a landowner. You can broker your own hunts, but it's it's bringing some money into you. You're having to deal with public a little bit more than some of these other other programs, but it's a way to to make your land open to people that are needing space. Y'all remember this? This is a significant problem, and it's not going to get better. You know, they're not the old adage: "Never make any more land." That's true. Something I want y'all to think about this weekend while you're here: Our is the big What can you do as a landowner? provide those opportunities. You think about those college students that I just told you about. I need to find a group of landowners that are willing to, to step up and just get the, I mean, those folks are going straight into our industry to get them out of the field. It will benefit them as biologists. It will make them better spokesperson, spokespeople if, if they're out hunting. Um, look around. Talk to the folks in your church. Talk to the folks in your community. If you're, if you're scared of opening up to just the general public, People that you may be closer to that you just never noticed before. If you're a landowner, if you have that unique opportunity to provide access, you can make a significant impact in ways that maybe you haven't thought about before. So that's that's what I want to challenge you with. If you're in that boat, if you have land, think about this. If you don't have land, but you're willing to take new hunters out and maybe you know somebody with land, everybody can connect. It's our responsibility to do this. Um, because Hunters are, hunters are walking away. In Texas, one of the biggest things we're, we're worried about in another two generations, if we don't get the numbers up, we will be outvoted. Texas just had to pass a right to hunt law. That seems a little ridiculous, doesn't it? But in two generations, if we don't reverse the numbers, that legislation probably doesn't get passed. This is, this is not this Texas specific. So I challenge you all this weekend. You're here because you're passionate about the outdoors. You're here because I assume you're passionate about hunting. Okay.
sitting just being in the outdoors. Let all these talks, let all the moves that you're going to see, let them get those juices flowing. Think about how, how you specifically can help. All right, I'm going to turn it back over to questions. The three of us are, are here. What do you all want to talk about? With the program that you're over in Texas where you're, the state's actually leasing land from private landowners, what protections are there established for the landowner at that point, and how do the lease rates compare with what they could get by leasing to a hunting club, or you know, what are, how does it compare with market rates for rent for land leasing? Okay, so the question is, there's a two-part question. What are we doing about liability, and what do the rates look like? I've been waiting for you for weeks. I knew this was going to be the first question. Liability, right? That's what, all, that's what we all want to know. In Texas, this is Texas specifically, because the state is the leaseholder, the legislature passed legislation protecting the landowner, saying since the state is holding the lease, I'll, I'll say y'all a bunch of weirdness. The way that the law reads is that in the eyes of the law, any hunter using it is usually a trespasser if something happens. Um, when they buy the permit and when they sign in at that box, they sign a little thing saying, I understand that I've waived my rights to sue the landowner. What I do additionally, I lease a lot of land from, from judges, from county judges and lawyers, a um, million dollar liability addition policy to their ag policy usually costs about somewhere between a dollar and a dollar fifty an acre, and I just add that into place. I tell them you don't need it, but we're going to give you another buck fifty to cover you going by the farm here, and you know, and, and bump this up. Most year ag policies already have something in there. This this makes them feel better. They certainly don't have to have it, but it's it's a feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, lease rates. I will meet or beat outfitters. Uh, we're paying market or over market because what we're doing is is benefiting the whole. I've got some personal feelings about government money competing with private industry, uh, so I try to I try to sit down and talk with outfitters in an area before I come in because I certainly don't want to take food off their table, but I want to get them involved. Specifically, I deal with a lot of uh, uh, goose and waterfowl outfitters. I'll sublease land that they think is marginal, so I'm not competing against them. They're making the money, but we're still allowing potential. Um, so our lease rates, uh, right now on Dove and Quail, in my part of the world, a Dove and Quail lease, really nice with some facilities on it, go for about four bucks, I'm paying 12. Wow. Because we want to get, we want to open that land. We, we got to do this. We got to get that. Is that covered? That covers it. I got a different, related, but a second question, but I can wait for somebody else to go. Yeah, so like now, if you were to come up and talk to me and ask 
person, a hunter is one of the top four. Like I'll say that I'm an animal lover, I'm a hunter, I'm a family person. Like it's it's my identity now. So yes, ma'am. Um, I'm from Kansas, and our, with our National Wild Turkey Federation group, we've been introducing archery in schools, and really that's really critical that we get into the schools because PETA's there in the school. So I mean. And that's probably our biggest uh, conflict is that as I was sitting at Christmas, my niece is not eating any meat. And that's because they're talking about it at school. And so, I was so, anyway, I kind of thought it's incredible, but you know, maybe we could put some emphasis in archery in schools. And we have that through our National Turkey Program, the Turkey Federation Group in Kansas. And of course, you saw Kansas, 99% of all our land is privately held. But we have a good walk-in system that uh, still, uh, you know, got to get to the schools and get those groups back to hunting. You know, it feels like an elephant's eating one bite at a time, right? We look at this problem, hunters walking away, and what we're facing is huge, but you got to start right here. You got to start right here on the left. That's what she's talking about. Uh, where I contact people in my state for, like, I just bought a large parcel of ground, and I was looking to start doing maybe some select timbering and things like that. So the partner with the SHARE programs, where do I find those people help to help me put that management plan together? Where do I find those What state contact? are you in? Kentucky. So I would start with your wildlife agency, Kentucky Fish and Game. Um, start, they're going to have foresters. I start with their Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, just online, we, I guess, DNR. We have, um, yeah, yeah, they're gonna have a forestry section, talk to them, they're gonna know who you might be able to talk to. Um, do y'all have any, anything else? Yeah, we have a unique example <laughs> in Louisiana where LDW, Louisiana Park Wildlife Fisheries, has foresters on staff, but they're gonna be acting as private lands biologists. Um, they do a lot of the turkey banding and the duck banding and other things, but when the landowner calls them, they're there to support them. Louisiana Department of Ag and Forestry, a uh, different division now, uh, has four supervisors that can also be called out to landowner properties. And the rest of the time, they're either on fire watch uh, because they do our fire protection for the state. Um, they also contract themselves out for the crowd burning, which is a little unique. So any of those two, uh, you may have something similar in your state. Uh, fish and wildlife is actually very helpful. Don't let the feds intimidate you. The guys that I work with are very helpful, very interested in getting out of the office. I'm sure they are biologists and they are, they are outdoorsmen. So we have several options. But besides that, you can call the NGOs. We have the other white tails on them. It's DU. All these people, you can make a phone call. And by putting out brochures and things out like that, you can call anybody on there, but they may forward you to somebody else. Um, as NWTF, I think that allows us enough partners that we have the resources. So there's always a starting point um, to eventually get to your answer. But again, like I was talking about patients, um, be prepared to call over one person if you really have a, a lot that maybe one department may not be specific on. Just remember those NGOs too, because I do know that there's um, some programs in the study. I don't know about specifically the surrounding states. I know that like Quail uh, Forever has some cargo biologists and that are down south that are doing site visits and evaluations. So definitely look at those NGOs too. Grants from NCRS might be used to supplement Superfund projects on COVID plant. Can we apply? I'm putting together a Superfund project now. Deer earns the biology, Nazareth, and I'll have a county that's at 51% national forest. Typically, they're private lands only. Okay. Yeah, typically it's private lands only. Uh, public lands, municipal lands don't usually qualify. I don't know if there's any loopholes, but there's just private land. I've asked the same question with my grant when we pass up the super funds or back and forth. Our super funds typically apply to Satchel National Forest and public lands with the, the state wildlife agency, um, but I typically won't share my money with that at the same time just to make sure that we're drawing the line where the funds can cross. I can't apply my funds on top of NRCS. They're federal funds. Even though they're in the, the other funds that I work with are NWTF funds, they started out as federal. We did with that. So I can't stack on top of 
federal programs. So I have to separate myself from them also. So some of those situations might be a little touchy. You just have to go case by case to see where it applies directly. In another situation in Louisiana, we have this actually was a real good program. NRCS is funding the restoration of Longley through the EQIP program, but the landowner had a switch king problem. Switch king is a problem for us in Louisiana. Can't get rid of it, and we'll overcome just about anything else. We brought U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in for the partner Fish and Wildlife Program. This landowner is two miles from the closest RCW colony, Red Cockade Woodpecker. So they were interested in this land being future RCW habitat. They are funding the herbicide applications to anything he needs from a herbicide perspective would focus on the switch game. That's the justification while NRCS is doing that for restoration. So that's a good thing about working with partners is somebody probably going to have an answer. You just kind of have to fill out the program case by case. The Golden Wind Warmer program feel nothing wrong. In Texas, I can't speak. Yeah, like West Virginia, and there's some, there's some reaching up into my New York. Um, there's, but for me, in New York, it falls under that Young Forest program. So our target species might be um, yellow or golden wind warbler, sorry. Um, or, like, say it's further north, and it's, the focus is doing the project. But it's all under that same RCPP in New York. And I know that a couple of the other states do have golden wind specific programs. So again, going back to the, the private land being leased to the state, how, how did that actually start with Texas? At what department on the state level did, did how, how did all that come about? So if we live in a state where that doesn't happen, where do we start spoke, stoking that fire? Your state land agency, the wildlife agency in Texas is called Texas Parks Land. They can apply for the BPA grant, Voluntary Public Access, as part of the farm bill. Uh, the money actually comes from FSA uh, Farm Service. Uh, they can they can apply for that. Oklahoma this last year was watching Texas success, and they put in Oklahoma guy who agrees. I think it's like eight million dollars for it, uh, and all that money goes. They're just leasing land with it. All that money goes straight back to land. Any state can put in with it, just have to apply. So whoever your game and fish, parks and wildlife, whatever your state calls it, they can apply for that money. Um, the old saying, you have not because you ask not, is true. And in this, the, the 2018 farm bill would be written right now. So the EPA grants, that's got to get brought up by our, by our congressman to get put back into the bill. So it is, now is a critical time to be talking about this. So that the folks that write our farm bill put this type of money back in. Texas is not Texas and Oklahoma are not the only states that do it. They're just they're just fighting real hard to, to hold on to what they got. Thank you. Your property is already earned like a land conservation program. Can that still happen to lease it out for hunting to the public? Absolutely. I lease an awful lot of land that's under NRCS contract, under CRP contract, that's under whip work, equip work. Um, I would say over half the Upland Bird leases that I have are, are all CRP contracts. Um, there's no conflict of interest so long as we don't violate your contract. So we, we pay, I'll put additional money into the lease to pay guys to, to disc or to put in uh, some kind of food plot, as long as they don't break the contract on CRP, which is usually, I think for us, it's usually 15 or 20 percent of the total acreage. As long as they don't break that, we'll find us. You can double dip on this. What term lease are y'all looking for? Or in Texas? I try to put everyone on a five-year lease. Uh, the reason being the way the state of Texas wrote the leases is that you can quit at any time you want, with with no harm, no foul to you. There's no you just walk away. You tell us you do it in the middle of hunting season if you want. So I tell folks, sign a five-year lease because you can quit any time if you don't like it. But that five years, we lock in that money. So you like right now, these guys that are crossing over to the new farm bill, if it doesn't get approved, their their money is still is still or still locked in. If that makes sense. Before we get off the topic of the land leasing and the opening hunting areas, 
And it's not just Texas and Oklahoma. I actually just listening remembered that Connecticut, believe it or not, Connecticut has a program where it will pay landowners that open up their property um, for hunting. And it's probably a little bit different, but I know they do pay like per acre and it's a yearly thing because um, they have like just a different program. But they do have private lands that they, the state agency will pay for you to open up your property. So if you're looking for somewhere in your own state, just look into it, call your wildlife agency and see if they have a program like that. Because you never know. I, mean, I would never find Connecticut had that. There's a lot of walk-in, the state's called walk-in programs. Montana's a big, big state like that with walk-in money. That money's coming from similar channels. Uh, it's just, it's, Montana didn't need to advertise it as much as, as Texas does. I know in Louisiana in the past four or five years, we've lost several WMAs because the state was actually leasing private lands mm -hmm. and creating a WMA on it. And because of the lease values going up and up and up, uh, the private landowners, as large companies, decided it was more beneficial to go up on the lease, and the state said, we don't have a budget for that. You know, and they, they can spread that on just about any time. So we've lost thousands and thousands of acres. One, one of them is 38,000 acres, I think, we've lost in the last couple of years. So programs like this are real important, but having the strength of NWTF and NGOs and our partners together, I hope we kind of turn that table uh, eventually and hopefully in Louisiana also so we can stop losing some of our private land WMAs, keep our public lands uh, open for money. And yeah, we've seen the same thing in Alabama with that, uh, losing a lot of our WMA lands that, that has been leased, some of it for 40 years or more. Uh, as part of the Talladega National Forest lands, and, and then we lease adjacent properties to it. And uh, you said those things are turning around. We're lucky enough to, the voters set aside the oil spill money <laughs> off the Gulf Coast from years ago and uh, had enough sense to say so we're not going to spend it all one time and we have a forever while uh, policy. And all the, the, the money that comes in from the sale of, of, of offshore drilling. And, uh, and 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 that oil spill money is set aside for actually actually to purchase land for hunting, and we we have uh, the our state NWTF helps with that a lot through the DCNR uh, in our state, where they they want to add to the WMAs, but at the same time too, if they want to purchase, which is we just made three really large purchases. When I said really large, it is for our state for. For, for uh, public hunting on this thing, you're you're dealing with you know uh, 4,000 acres or so at a lick on, on these things, and uh, so they, if they require a lot of these things require yellow book appraisals, which are very costly and very prolonged. You can you could already have the land you know bought and forgotten about. So what we have done we set the, the, the Alabama State Board we set back. Money years ago, 40% of our our super fund money is set back for land acquisition. So we build a fund, and then when they come in and say, "Well, this land is available for purchase, but it may be on the table for a very short period of time," we pay for the appraisal. We just outright pay for the appraisal. And some believe it or not, sometimes you can buy the land as cheap as you can have it appraised, and we have done that. Our, our state board has just bought the land and gave it to. Our DCNR, Department of Conservation, Act, to add to that, uh, those things, and it, it shortens the process and, and adds to our public hunting dramatically, dramatically, with uh, those ways. But you're seeing you're seeing more and more of our, the prices go up. Like you're talking about Louisiana, you're just going to have to either outright buy, <laughs> you know, or really step up to the plate and give more sometimes than what it's worth. And the private side of that is when people lease their land privately to a hunting club, and some of you may be doing that, um, that land can also be in these programs and they can still lease it. As long as the land, landowner and that leasee have that agreement that, hey, I'm fixing to build something in RCS funds, you can't go destroy it. So I know a guy that has several thousand acres and he just individually leases the tracks out. But he gives them a real good deal because he's going to say, when I need fire lanes, I need y'all to go disc yeah. fire lanes for me. He takes the money that NRCS gives him 
and he puts it in his own tractor and go to other land and does something with it, or he pays a contractor to do stuff with it. He's getting what he wants out of lease seat. He's getting what he wants from the RCS. And he's not just popping it, he's actually putting it somewhere else to do some more good with it. Yeah. So those are some ideas that, you know, when you start building the smaller tracks, um, that might be options for landowners to understand. It's easier to get into these programs. Uh, still be flexible. You know, something Ronnie brought up and something you just said just a moment ago, one reason state and federal contractors like Turkey Federation so much that this is patting ourselves on the back, but I think it's deserved. We cut through the red tape so much. Yeah. And the money can be, yeah. I want to say, washed with us a little bit. My, the, the reason that Turkey Federation can do in Texas what we're doing because they fully transfer the money to us. So now there's an awful lot of the rules are away. So it speed things up when you mentioned mm -hmm. and it goes, yeah. You know, all state, county, federal, the wheels can, can grind to a halt, as, as we all know. They like us in this partnership that Ronnie keeps talking about, because we can speak that side which we needed. And, and what your board is doing was super fun on Astro Minutes. It, it makes that money readily available. It, it makes a difference. And, and that makes military lands very appealing for super funds or our grant funds. Fort Polk, being DOD, can't go buy seedlings on a credit card. And what happened? They have to put in purchase requests a year ahead of time or even further to be able to get approved. I buy those seedlings direct. We run a check to an international forest company to the seedling nursery for those seedlings to restore 300 acres a year. Wow. We did 351 a year, now we're down to 300. They've done it in small individual tracts of 8 acres all the way up to 150 acres. They like to burn this land, so long as seeds to simplify it because it makes it safer for the soldiers to train on. Granted, they may run over only for the tank. Their priority is training the soldiers. We support that. So we, with our grant money, can go buy those seedlings, cut through the red tape. As long as they're ordered by February or, or March of this year for next year's planting, and I stay on top of them about it, put it in your name, but the invoice is going to come to me. I won't process the invoice to the NWTA. Their chief of conservation brings it up every year. Thank you. You have no idea how hard it is for us to get something approved. Everything they want to buy, the government wants to call it an asset. We buy it and we cut through that red tape. It's their trees. We just bought it for them. Thank you, guys. side of things. I mean, our property is fixing to make some beautiful telephone poles, um, but it's not real diverse habitat. Um, how, how do I key in on somebody that's going to help with the habitat portion? And while, what I'll tell you is when I talk to my regional director from the NWTF, he said, if you want to get anybody from the uh, NWTF staff biology out there, they're planning a 10 grand donation before we even get started. I'm not a, I'm not a rich man that didn't happen. That's, that's very important. My, my initial thing is that you need a biologist to come out and look at it. You don't need a forester because yep. the forester can be looking at those, those pretty Not necessarily. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
best under the radar cost-share programs with federal audience, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's their mileage to do stuff on it. In Texas, I can't speak for the rest of the country. In Texas, they don't advertise it. Everybody's used to going out to fish. They know that part of it. Fish and Wildlife, through this program, is kind of very under the radar, but their cost-share, at least the folks who go in Texas, is 95% available, which would mean you're only putting 5% up, and they'll include your 5% as well. You can imagine there's a lot of people who advertise that that much, but they're going to be down. That is one of the best programs. You're getting biologists to do planning and assisting and walking you through things. They come with a tremendous amount of money. We work with them, as you heard right now. We do 100% in Louisiana for 10 years, as long as it's within the budget. They've established a pot of money for you for 10 years, or 5 years, whatever your agreement ends up being, and they'll take care of whatever needs to be taken care of, as long as it's within the project to deal with some type of management plan. But yes, he's right. Great biologists, they want to get out of the office. People don't call them enough, but their budgets are very small, and now they have to be regionally approved. For us, they have to go all the way to Atlanta to ask for a project to be approved. These two of us in Louisiana have kind of attributed the most beneficial to some threatened and endangered species, which could be a plant market. So now they're looking at that a little bit more stringently, so it might be more difficult to find the funds, but to get the help. These guys are there, I think, pretty easy to get a hold of and easy to get them out because they're feds, they push the paperwork a lot. It's unfortunate, but I think they're pretty helpful for us. So it might be an option for you. But when we, when I go out, I don't talk as long as some people. I actually had a chiropractor say that a lawyer told him not to talk, but that I will try to convince him to plant one. So I said, no, that's not true. Well, we'll see what you want to do first and see what we can do with this lot while they're stashed. But I think having the diversity of forestry and biologists and what we do with TF, there's other things you can do. You're not just growing poles, I can promise you. There's something there that somebody hasn't picked up on or NRCS hasn't. Louisiana NRCS has wildlife biologists on staff. And those guys have the opportunities to get out of the admin portion and get out in the field because they are biologists. Well, those options may be there and you just haven't found the right person. Okay, I hope that you enjoyed the replay of that seminar. I thought it was very interesting. And we also got some pretty good land management tips and advice from Kaylee Risha, who's a wildlife biologist for the state of New York. So I hope that you guys enjoyed all of that. And maybe you'll implement some of the management techniques that Kaylee talked about. Or if you lease private land for hunting, maybe you'll sit down and have a talk or two with the landowner of the property that you lease for hunting about some of these management techniques. It all boils down to the fact, and my entire 2018 turkey season proved this, if you don't have turkeys on your hunting property, you cannot kill turkeys. So why not improve the habitat on the hunting property that we have access to in order to improve our turkey hunting success? All right, so that is all that I have for you guys this week. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. If you have not in the past left a five-star rating and a review for the Turkey Hunter podcast, then please do so. That is a huge help to me. It's a huge help to anyone who stumbles across the show to decide whether or not they want to listen in. So if you've got it in you and you haven't done it yet, leave a five-star rating and a review. It's much appreciated. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, 
how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.